We're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and to Revelation chapter 12. You'll find our reading on pages 1034 and 1035 of the Pew Bibles, 1034 over into 1035. Uh, We're going to be thinking mainly about verses 1 to 6 of Revelation 12, but we're going to read the whole passage. And boys and girls, before, we, before you head out to snack tonight, we're going to read this passage and then we're going to watch a little video which is going to explain the passage for you. So you've got to look out for some of the characters in this passage. There are three main characters and I'm going to tell you who they are after we've read it together. So Revelation chapter 12, we're beginning at verse 1 and we're reading the whole chapter down to verse 17 and this is God's word to us. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Let's pray before we think about the Bible together. Lord, we're thankful for the hope and joy that the Lord Jesus brings. We thank you that that hope and joy is communicated to us through his word. And 
We pray that as we look at your word tonight, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to understand it, that you would challenge us, but that you would also encourage us as we think about how Jesus is our champion, the the dragon slayer, the one who has won a great victory for us. Help us, we pray, for we ask in his name. Amen. Uh, We're looking at Revelation 12 tonight. You'll find it on page 1034 of the Pew Bibles and over into 1035. Tonight we're dropping into the last book of the Bible uh, to think about the Christmas story. And you might be thinking, another odd choice. Isaiah 40 this morning initially seemed like an odd choice, but we got there in the end. But Revelation 12, really? Are you serious? How is this chapter related to the Christmas story? Uh, You've hopefully had a hint of why it is through the video we watched earlier in the service. But we need to think about Christmas in a different way. There's a sense in which our minds are so sanitized to the story because we hear it year after year after year. It never changes, nor should it. But it's hard to get a fresh take on something that is just so ingrained in our minds. It's probably virtually impossible for us to imagine a world without Christmas Since childhood, our days have been numbered by what came before and what came after Christmas. There is before Christmas, BC, and after Christmas, AD, the year of our Lord. Despite the fact that many people reject the true Christmas story outright, we know that it's the hinge of history, the day that changed everything. It's worth imagining what it would have been like to be there on that first Christmas What would it have been like to be among those to whom it was announced? Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. What would it have been like to have heard that announcement? There's actually a deep irony in the Christmas story. First, there's there's the nativity itself. The creator of the universe, the king of kings, was born in a barn. Through Christmas, God turns the wisdom of the world on its head. The news of the Saviour's birth isn't announced to the cultural elites or the middle classes, but to shepherds. Smelly, unkempt, hill-dwelling, bottom-of-the-rung outsiders. And to add insult to injury, the signs of the Messiah's birth are understood not by the religious establishment, but by magi. We know virtually nothing about them. They were maybe faithful believers in Babylon, carrying on the work that Daniel began when he served in the kingdom there. They could have been from somewhere else, but they were were certainly not religious in the traditional sense of the word. The second irony is that Christmas was most definitely not a silent night. It was a dingy, earthy experience. There's nothing particularly dignified about delivering a baby, never mind doing it without the luxury of air conditioning, a clean hospital room, and so on and so forth. Our ceramic and our wooden stables that recreate the manger don't quite cut it. They don't give us a sense of the violence that came with such a moment. And yet the Bible tells us that something cataclysmic was happening at the first Christmas. As Mary labored, An evil stirred that was so great, so devilish, that it called for the blood of all of Bethlehem's infant sons. Our hero and his family were hunted by Satan himself and fled to Egypt, chased by an ancient evil, throwing down stars from the sky. Christmas is violent. It's earth-shattering. The early church father, Jerome, put it in this way. He said, he found no room in the Holy of Holies that shone with gold, precious stones, pure silk and silver. 
He's not born in the midst of gold and riches, but in the midst of dung, in a stable, wherever there's a stable, there's also dung, where our sins were more filthy than the dung. He is born on a dunghill in order to lift up those who come from it. From a dunghill, he lifts up the poor. But when the Christ child gasped, gasped his first breath, the, the, the hinge of history swung in a new direction and hell shuddered. The assault on its gates had begun and Revelation 12 tells us all about it. This is the halfway point of the final book of the Bible and it's the centerpiece to the entire letter. The 10-year-old boy in me loves this chapter. It's like the Bible's version of a story from the Lord of the Rings or something similar. When I was younger, I spent an awful lot of time playing PlayStation with my younger brother. And one of our favorite games was Sparrow the Dragon. If you're of a similar vintage, you might remember the game. The game centered on this little purple dragon that you controlled and did lots of different missions with. The dragon we read about in Revelation is in Revelation 12 it is more than just a computer-generated image. He's real and fierce and not to be taken lightly. But what has been going on in Revelation before this chapter? Well, in the opening 11 chapters of Revelation, we see tempted churches, suffering churches, judgments on the earth, and conflict in the world. The first half of the book provides general overviews of history. It tells us that the world is opposed to the gospel, but reminds us of our calling to persevere in the faith. The second half of Revelation focused, focuses on the chief characters involved in the spiritual warfare that is taking place behind the scenes. One by one, different figures are introduced to us in chapters 12 to 15, and one by one, their defeat and judgment is shown in chapters 16 to 20. In chapter 12, there are three different characters mentioned, and what this chapter does is that it pulls back the curtain of Christmas. It gives us an insight into the spiritual battle that was raging at the first Christmas and that continues to rage now. There are three different characters, and so what we're going to do is think about each character. Once we've done that, we'll wrap up with some application. The three characters are the dragon, the child, and the woman. In Revelation, pictures are used to describe realities. Pictures have symbolic meaning, and it's no different here. We're going to identify each character and think about them for a few moments. So we're going to start with the dragon because he's the easiest to identify. So first of all, the dragon. The dragon is Satan, the devil. And he's mentioned first of all in verse 3, but he's identified in verse 9. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is possibly the easiest little bit of revelation to interpret. It's because John gives us the answer so plainly. If only the rest of the book was this easy to interpret, but it's very plain here, the dragon is Satan. In verse 9, there's a very clear allusion to Genesis 3. He's called that ancient serpent. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the rest, in, in the rest of the chapter, we see how crafty and deceptive he is. Genesis 3 tells us about the story of the fall of man. Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden fruit and they're sentenced to sorrow, toil and death. Satan leads them and the whole world astray. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He tells half-truths. He gives misleading information. He spreads fake news. And look at how vividly he's described in verse 3 as well. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns 
and on his heads on his on his heads seven diadems. Now it's helpful to think about the symbolism, uh, some of the symbolism within Revelation at this point. Previously in Revelation, before this passage, the color red has symbolized strife. Uh, You see that in Revelation 6 in the seven seals. Seven indicates completeness and ten stands for strength. So the dragon is red, he's fiery and he's dangerous. He's got seven heads and that tells us about his intelligence. He's got power because he's got ten heads. And then on those heads he has seven diadems. Points to the fact that he is he has rule over this world. He's, he's falsely claiming authority. Later on in Revelation, the Lord Jesus has crowns on his head as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Satan, the, the, the dragon, is, is falsely imitating Jesus. Verse 3 is a terrifying picture of the one whom Paul calls the God of this world. Now it's possible that this description of the dragon points us in the direction of the Roman Empire, Rome itself, That was the context in which John and other believers found themselves in. The city of Rome Rome was sometimes called the city on seven hills. It had seven hills around it. And it was also divided into ten districts. It could be that the dragon is symbolic of Rome, that it represents the, the fallen world system. There are similar types of images in the Old Testament in relation to Egypt, among others. But what John is doing here as he describes the dragon Satan is that he's saying that behind the fallen world system is the devil. Now, many people today dismiss the devil as fantasy or myth, but you cannot take the Bible seriously without believing in this personal and powerful spirit, the fallen archangel who is the enemy of Christ and his church. You, can't, or you also can't make any real sense of the world as it is without accounting for him. History is the story of the conflict between God and the devil. In verse 4, we're told that the dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. A lot of people jump to the conclusion that this refers to Satan leading a host of angels into heaven in rebellion against God. It's maybe not so much that. It's more likely that it's a reference to Daniel 8, verses 9 and 10. Now there, Daniel speaks about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the great persecutor of the Jews, And the point that John is making is that Satan intends for his malicious actions on earth to do damage in heaven. This vision symbolizes the arrogant aims of Satan's warfare on earth against the church, against believers. The devil is hell-bent on destroying the church. He's an enemy of all that's good and true. He's strong and powerful and fierce, and he wants to walk all over the people of God. So that's the first character in the cosmic drama then. The dragon. The dragon is Satan. What about the male child? Well, the male child who is born of the woman is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, this in this verse, there's a reference to Psalm 2. And it's a psalm which prophesies the coming of the Messiah and says that when he comes, he shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Something similar has already been said of Jesus in Revelation. Back in Revelation 2 and and in the letter to the church of Thyatira, it ends with a promise which says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, 
as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Jesus is the child born of the woman and is the Messiah and will one day make the kingdom kingdom of this world become his kingdom. So we either submit adoringly to Christ as our Lord and Savior or we fall under his rod of judgment. Verse five is a really brief summary of Jesus' work. It mentions his birth and then it jumps to his ascension. The woman gives birth to him and then he is caught up to God and to his throne. It's a very abbreviated telling of Jesus' ministry. But the point from the male child is this. The devil wants to defeat the son, the child who is born, but the son destroys the devil and is triumphant. He's then exalted and reigns with him who sits on the throne. We're supposed to think of 1 John 3. John, the same John who wrote Revelation, says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the dragon is the devil. The male child is Jesus. But what about the woman? This is our third character and we've left her to the end because it's slightly more complicated to try and figure out who she is. So the woman. When I was at Union College, I did an essay on this passage and it was a really stimulating piece of work to do. As you can maybe imagine, there are different opinions on parts of this passage and there's a lot of discussion about who the woman is. Historically speaking, our friends in the Roman Catholic tradition have said that the woman is Mary. They say that because, because, the, because the son is Jesus. If the son is Jesus, then it's reasonably obvious that Mary is his mother. Now, is the woman Mary? Well, it's a yes and a no. Mary is a type of this woman. The, the woman is someone a little different. The, 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 details of, the, the details in Revelation 12 don't quite fit Mary's story. And th- this woman's children include all who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The woman is actually more symbolic of God's people. She, she, she represents the covenant community of God's faithful people. She includes both Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. All of God's people were wrapped up in Mary as she gave birth. Now let me back this up a little bit with a couple of references from other parts of the Bible. So think back to Genesis 3.15, the first announcement of the gospel. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent is cursed and God says that there will be hostility or enmity between him and the woman's offspring. From the very beginning, God says that history is about this line, this, this seed versus those who come from the devil. And you can actually see this image played out throughout the rest of Genesis. Cain versus Abel, Ishmael versus Isaac, Esau versus Jacob, Edom versus Israel, and then later Saul versus David. There are two lines. There's a conflict in this world. The hope of God's people was that this promised seed of Genesis 3.15 would crush the serpent's head. God's people were like an expectant mother awaiting the promised child. The child was one born by woman, Mary. But in another sense, this was Eve's child. And in another sense, it was everyone's child. Everyone looking forward to the birth of the Messiah. The woman represents God's people. Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. Look again at verse 1. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. So you've got a few different things there. You've got the sun, you've got the moon, and you've got twelve stars. 
Does that remind you of any other story from the Bible? Well, you've got to think back to Genesis again, this time Genesis 37. And that's where Joseph, who's favored by his father, Jacob, is given this fancy coat and tells everyone about his dreams. Listen to Genesis 37, verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, what does that imagery mean? Listen to verse 10. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now, it seems that Jacob got it. Who are the sun, the moon, and the stars? Jacob, Rachel, and your 11 brothers. Joseph was the extra brother, so that makes 12. So the sun, the moon, and the stars in Revelation 12.1 is a symbol for God's people. The, The woman of Revelation 12 is intentionally modeled on Israel in Genesis 37. This is God's people collectively giving birth to the Messiah. So the three different characters in our cosmic drama are the dragon, the devil, the male child, Jesus, and the woman, God's people. Let me summarize what's going on in the early part of the chapter. The Messiah is about to come forth through the person of Mary individually, but more than that, through the people of God collectively. And God's people are expectant, they're waiting. Meanwhile, the devil is also waiting. He's ready to devour this child. But once the child is born, the devil doesn't crush him. Instead, the son is triumphant over the devil, and then he sits at the right hand of God and rules the nations with an iron scepter. And that, in a nutshell, is the Christmas story. After the son leaves the church, the woman is still there. They're under attack, and so she seeks refuge in the wilderness, as you can see in verse 6. God's people are, in, are a wilderness people modeled after their savior who went through his own time of wilderness. The, the image of wilderness here is supposed to make us think of trial and safety. The church is under attack, but it's kept secure. The, those, those are the characters in Revelation 12. That's kind of the plot line. So what though? And how does it connect with us? Well, let me give you two big applications as we draw our time together to a close. Here's the first. We're involved in an intense cosmic conflict. We are involved in an intense cosmic conflict. That is to say that we are all part of this world, that this world which is groaning, this world which is trying to give birth to the new heavens and new earth. You and I are involved in an intense spiritual conflict. Behind the curtain, behind the drama of your life, There stands a victorious king who loves you and who died for you and who wants what is best for you. But there's also a liar, a deceiver, a destroyer who hates the church, who hates God's people and wants you to hate this king. When the Allied forces landed in Normandy in June 1944, the Second World War was as good as over. The German generals began appealing to Hitler to negotiate an end to the war. But Hitler did exactly the opposite. He dug in and and, and in his mad rage against his enemies, he did all that he could to hurt them. He launched a V2 rocket campaign on major cities in England in the last few months of the war until the rocket launch sites were overrun and captured. Over a thousand V2 rockets landed in England, killing many people and damaging London. But why did Hitler do that even though the war was lost? It's Revelation 12, 12. But woe to you, O earth and sea, 
For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. His time was up. The war was virtually over. What was left were only skirmishes before the final victory. And it's the same with Satan. Satan persecutes the church on earth, not because he thinks he can take away our salvation. He knows that he most definitely can't. But he's driven by pure malice in the face of certain defeat. We're involved in an intense cosmic conflict. There's a cosmic battle going on and it's going on in your ordinary, boring, mundane life. You might say, well, I just get up and go to work. There's nothing particularly special about me. Wrong. If you're a Christian, there's a cosmic battle going on and your life is part of that conflict. Every day behind the scenes, there's a devil who is hell-bent on destroying the church, on destroying God's people. Now let's frame that thought in the light of Christmas. Well, why is it that people are so distracted at this time of year? Presents, people, food. Christmas isn't about those things, as we said this morning. But why do people obsess over them? Presents, what to get, what to buy. People, who to have over. Food, do we have enough? I think we need some more. I'll probably just throw it out, but I'll get it anyway, just in case. This is probably not a very popular or trendy thing to say. But, but there must be a sense in which Christmas and all the stuff attached to it nowadays is part of a wider cosmic battle. When the Christ child gasped his first breath, the hinge of history swung in a new direction and hell shuddered. The assault on its gates had begun. You can be sure that the evil one wants people to forget about that. You can be sure that he wants people to ignore that message and focus on presence and people and food. This Christmas, you're involved in an intense cosmic conflict. And the question is, what are you doing this Christmas that's different from the world around you? How are you worshipping and what are you worshipping? How well are you fighting? And how is your walk with the Lord? For some of us, that maybe isn't the most encouraging application we've ever heard. But that's where the second application comes in. We are involved in an intense cosmic conflict, but the story of Christmas is the story about the victory of God through Jesus Christ. We're called to overcome, we're called to fight the good fight, but we're not called to be dragon slayers. You don't have to go and kill this dragon. He has been defeated. He has been hurled down. The accuser of the brethren has been defeated. Just look at verses 10 and 11. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The world does not depend on you. The devil has been defeated. We're not called to be dragon slayers. The fate of the universe doesn't rest on your shoulders. What are we to do, though? Well, look again at verse 11. Satan is overcome by ordinary faithfulness. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. We overcome by living for Jesus in our ordinary, boring, mundane lives. We're called to stand firm in the face of Satan's accusations by trusting in Christ's blood. We're called to stand in the face of Satan's hostility. We're called to follow Jesus, whatever the cost. It's as we'll sing to close. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, 
I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. Give my heart. We're involved in an intense cosmic conflict, but we need not fear because ultimately Jesus wins. The story of Christmas is the story about the victory of God through Jesus Christ. And that is the hope that we take into this week, that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price, and that the one who has bought us will never let us go. Revelation 12 pulls back the curtain of Christmas and tells us that this dragon is an enemy of all that's good and true. This monster lies and steals and kills. But dragons always meet their match. They always meet their doom. And in Revelation 12, we see the great cosmic story of the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world, the devil, meeting his doom. And that doom comes through the victory of our knight, our champion, our saviour, the baby who was born in the manger, the Lord Jesus Christ. As another week begins, let's look to him and trust in him because there really is no one else worthy. There really is no one else like him. And if you've never trusted him before, maybe tonight's the night to think about doing just that. Christmas is violent. It's earth-shattering. Jesus was born not in the midst of golden riches, but in the midst of dung, in a stable where our sins were more filthy than the dung itself. But when the Christ child gasped his first breath, the hinge of history swung in a new direction and hell shuddered. The assault on its gates had begun and Revelation tells us all about it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the victory of the Lord Jesus and we thank you that it's a victory that we can celebrate at this Christmas time. We realize that there is a great cosmic battle going on in the heavenly realms. But we thank you that Jesus has overcome the ancient serpent, the devil, that he has been thrown down and that he accuses us no more. How we thank you for Jesus. How we thank you for how he is our champion, our knight, our dragon slayer. Help us to rest in him this week. Help us to find our comfort and joy in him. And we pray for those who haven't yet trusted in him that they might come to know him for the first time this evening. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that it would linger in our minds this night and through the rest of the week. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.